Hello once again, your wonky and affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez here for The Chronicles Reconsidered, where we look back at former mystery science theater experiments and see what we can learn through their recent home video releases exclusively for you lovely subscribers here on Patreon. Way back in Chapter 4 of the podcast, Season 3 of MST3K, which I dubbed the Japanese Season, Joel and the bots had many a run-in with cheapo distributor extraordinaire Sandy Frank whose specialty was acquiring film franchises and television miniseries from the land of the rising sun and re-editing and repackaging them for a new, unfamiliar audience, often robbing them of whatever context they may have previously had and always making them at least 200% fucking weirder. The latter not necessarily being a bad thing, but it bears mentioning. This week, we return to the one character who appeared in more MST3K episodes than any other, officially and unofficially, the colossal friend to all children, Gamera. He who was filled with turtle meat, and star of a film series that needed absolutely no help with being absolutely fucking gonzo. Earlier this year, the beautiful genre-minded cinema-loving Brits at Arrow Video put together an eight-disc box set of 12 movies lovingly restored, housed in a case so thick and heavy you could bludgeon a small child to death with it. Not that you should. Doing so would obviously be against the basic tenets of Gamerology. And against the law. More so than, but not dissimilar to America, the film industry of post-World War II Japan was essentially a couple of distributors that controlled production and exhibition, most of which had been in existence since the industry's formation. You had Shokachiku, whom we discussed in the podcast proper during our discussion of Cinematic Titanic and War of the Insects. You had Toei. You had Nikatsu, Toho, and Daie. To American viewers, even those relatively well-versed in world cinema, of the latter two, Toho is probably the only one that carries any instant name recognition for one major reason. The second most culturally popular monster in the history of the silver screen, everyone's favorite fire-breathing nuclear lizard, Godzilla. Big G, the Zills. This living embodiment of atom-splitting anxiety was so influential and so omnipresent in Japanese and even American culture, you would be forgiven if you forgot that the same year as Shiro Honda's original Gojira hit theaters, Toho released Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, both films together saving the studio from bankruptcy. It still boggles my mind that the same studio could find its salvation in both the King of the Kaiju and Kurosawa. Anyway, Godzilla stomps through Tokyo in 1954, ushering in an entire genre, and their chief rival, Daie, who also had some experience with Kurosawa having produced Rashomon, immediately gets envious. For some reason, they took their sweet-ass time in creating their response film, which also drew inspiration from Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, a monster movie called The Great Rat Swarm that would have depicted, as the title suggests, giant or great rats chewing Tokyo to pieces. Despite a significant investment in radio-controlled prop monsters, the production ended up relying on actual rats for filming, and when these vermin became infested with fleas, not to mention their inability to, or perhaps unwillingness to take directions, because they're fucking rats, the film was shut down by the health department. All that money having gone to waste, Daie was adamant that they press ahead with a monster movie of some kind, and the president of the studio, Masayachi Nagata, was struck with a sense of divine inspiration when he imagined a turtle flying alongside him on a commercial flight. 
Immediately afterward, he instructed his staff to write something based on this vague batshit idea, which resulted in a treatment called a fire-eating turtle attacks Japan. Because, sure. The monster in this story was named Kamara, with a K, as Kame is the Japanese word for turtle, but Kamara soon became Gamera, borrowing the first letter of Godzilla's name. Coincidence? Yeah. There are other elements of 1965's Gamera the Giant Monster, the most literal title ever, by the way, that definitely borrow from Godzilla, though. Godzilla was a giant sea lizard awoken from hibernation by an atomic bomb detonation, and somehow energized by the blast, as evidenced by his fire breath and nasty radiation farts. Gamera is a giant turtle awoken from hibernation by an atomic bomb detonation, but he doesn't seem to get anything from the blast, he just seems really pissy that he was getting a really solid nap going, and it was interrupted. I get that. I've been there, bro. Like Godzilla, Gamera has a special skill, albeit one that is, um, eccentric? He can pull his arms, legs, and head into his protective shell, not unusual, he's a turtle, and ignite rocket jets from his butt then spin in circles, and fly. That part is slightly unusual. Although anthropologists discovered a tortoise in the Galapagos with butt rockets about 15 years ago, so it's not entirely unprecedented. Like Godzilla, in Gamera's inaugural outing, he was decidedly the villain, a monster to be reckoned with and hopefully destroyed, knocking down intricately assembled miniature buildings and stomping tiny matchbox cars in an adorable fashion. But here's where Gamera's actually ahead of the curve on the G-Man. Godzilla gradually became an anti-hero and eventually an out-and-out -out champion who doesn't care about collateral damage because his films would routinely play matinee showings, which saw his popularity increase with children, particularly young boys, and inspired Toho to make his films less violent and his actions more sympathetic. The hero turn for Gamera, however, was evident in his first movie, although I'm not sure that the creators are being entirely honest about how conscious the turn was. Let me set it up. In the first film, Gamera notably saves the life of a child. He kills a shitload of civilians and military personnel, but that one kid lives. Consequently, Daie got countless fan letters from children after the film's release in praise of Gamera, which inspired the filmmakers to bestow an honorary title on the character, Friend to All Children. They conveniently never mention that he's definitely not a friend to their parents, because he's stepped on more than a few with impunity, but I don't mean to split hairs. According to an interview with director Noriaki Yuasa, this scene was written to establish that Gamera was a friend to children, but that it was a secret to everyone but he and the screenwriter, and it only went from subtext to text with the children's letters. I call bullshit on this one, because it's at odds with the tone of the rest of the film, but it could also be chalked up to a cultural divide. There are a lot of things that seem incongruous to me in Japanese films simply because I don't live there, and I assume that the same would hold true vice versa. But this seems especially strange. Anyway, the movie is a huge hit for Daie and spawns six sequels, as well as one clip show billed as a sequel that we'll get to in time, but the versions that become part of the cultural conversation in Japan never really make it to America. The first movie gets the Godzilla King of the Monsters treatment in that many scenes are cut and reshot with American actors explaining scenes in the Japanese version, and it's the only Gamera movie to actually get a theatrical release in the States. The rest end up cut to pieces and dubbed in syndication on television from American International Pictures. But we're talking about them because of their treatment at the hands of another distributor, Sandy Frank, 
best known for syndicating the likes of Name That Tune and The Dating Game. Sandy Frake commissions a new dub and edit for each of the films that he licenses, which includes chopping off all of the opening credits and replacing them with an identical sequence, and let's just say that his versions, like kind of the originals, are not really known for their quality. You know, guys, hmm. it just dawned on me how, how weird this film is, you know? Yeah, It's really. just it kind of goofy. This brings us to the Sandy Frank Package, a collection of movies and television shows that networks or affiliates can add to their content library for either a lump sum or a reasonable licensing fee. And Frank's package in particular is what you get when you must have content for your channel, but you don't actually care what that content is. That's how the package ends up in the library of KTMA, a UHF station in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, which launches a flash-in-the-pan two-hour variety show called Mystery Science Theater 3000 in the fall of 1998. Part of the conceit of the original MST3K was a reliance on whatever movies KTMA had at their disposal, something that wouldn't require cutting an additional check, something that they could just watch at the drop of a hat and riff off the cuff for that week's episode. When Joel Hodgson, Trace Beaulieu, Kevin Murphy, Josh Weinstein, and Jim Mallon saw that KTMA had five movies about a giant turtle in their arsenal up for grabs, it must have been manna from heaven. Three years later, after making the big leap to cable television with the Comedy Channel and later Comedy Central, Best Brains were able to acquire many of the same movies from the Sandy Frank package, introducing the Gamera movies and the likes of Fugitive Alien to non-Minneapolis local audiences like me. For the longest time, my opinion of the Gamera movies was pretty simple. Not unlike Tom Servo's. This is some goofy shit. Watching them in the 90s as a teen, even as the terrible Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie was showing the world how not to do a monster movie, I would have said, lame. But looking at them today, I see men in giant rubber suits punching each other and tripping over model cities and think, this is what movies are all about. Why can't all movies be like this? This kind of awe and appreciation comes from years of conditioning myself to understanding the breadth of the cinematic spectrum, which, as I've said before here, is a side effect of making this podcast. Because I want to know more about these goofy-ass movies that some robot puppets talked over that one time back in the early 90s, I have gone to great lengths, and at great expense, I might add, to listen to those who hold these movies in high esteem, or at least high enough esteem to invest in quality remasters and presentations, not to mention producing and retaining supplements that give the film's context. Just last year, Criterion busted out a box set of all these Showa-era Godzilla movies, 15 in total, a series where you could only make the argument that one is actually a straight-faced masterpiece. But by having the most trusted name in home video give credence to not only the inaugural outing, but 14 subsequent increasingly nutty installments, that gives more snooty people like me permission to appreciate these things as one cohesive body of work. To feel less inclined to divide things into what's respectable enough to, um, respect, and what isn't. Which is kind of liberating. This brings us to Arrow Video. Arrow Video, in their own way the British cult version of Criterion, went to considerable lengths to give the Criterion Godzilla treatment to Daae's flying turtle analogy, encompassing not only the original seven movies, but also the regrettable 1980 mashup Gamera Super Monster, the mid-90s reboot Guardian of the Universe trilogy, and the second reboot, 
2006's Gamera the Brave. In addition to crisp remasters that put the Sandy Frank versions on MST3K to shame, these discs outdo Criterion's supplement light dedication to Godzilla, with commentaries on every movie, informative introductions for each film from August Ragoni, who also introduced all the Season 8 Japanese MST3K episodes for Shout Factory, and all of the comprehensive bonus features ported over from the Japanese DVDs which include literally hours of retrospective interviews, visual effects breakdowns, documentary b-roll, and my favorite, a return to the prop shack, where the director of one of the later films gives a camera crew a look at the various camera suits used in those movies, all of which are hanging from the ceiling like Carbone in the meat truck from Goodfellas. He was frozen so stiff it took them two days to thaw him out for the autopsy. That someone put this much love into preserving a series that is ultimately about a giant turtle with rockets in his butt is inherently humorous, but also a testament to what makes film fandom so great. Is it silly? Yes, of course it is, but it brings people joy. And knowing that smart people spent good money making these movies look as good as possible and coupling them with academic analytical supplements because they love these silly movies so much brings me immense joy. Let's break it down. When the Sandy Frank package was riffed on MST3K, either time, there were five featured installments. Gamera, Gamera vs. Baragon, Gamera vs. Gauss, Gamera vs. Giron, and Gamera vs. Zegra. But as I mentioned just a few seconds ago, there were actually seven of these movies. Whether it was Sandy Frank or KTMA or Best Brains who neglected to acquire all seven, I'm unsure. But the two that didn't make the cut were Gamera vs. Virus and Gamera vs. Jiger. What the actual plot's concern is ultimately immaterial, because these are giant monster movies and literally no one is coming for the story structure. But to boil them down, Virus is a giant squid, which honestly sounds more visually compelling than the dinosaur armadillo baragon, and Jiger is a triceratops with a dorsal fin, which is like something out of Land of the Lost as remade by a five-year-old with papier-mâché. Whether we missed anything or were deprived of any classic Gamera moments through the elimination of two movies from the cycle is unclear. Maybe it could have been fun, maybe two more would be the tipping point into people thinking that MST3K was just the Gamera show. Also, I don't know if the writers could have survived another two movies. They seem to be pretty punch drunk and at their wits end at the end of the cycle, and a dorsal triceratops could have been the straw that broke the space turtle's back. But divorced from the show, by studying these seven movies, I learned some interesting things. I think. According to the director, the aforementioned Noriaki Yuasa, the message of the Gamera series is, quote, listen to children, end quote. He says that during one of the films, he filmed in an institution for a week for reasons that I cannot determine because none of these movies are set in one as far as I know, and he was shocked to notice that the children in these facilities were sad. Pause. Dude. You were shocked to notice this? How sheltered a life are you living? Unpause. Yuasa says that through Gamera, the movies are saying, quote, we are your friend. You don't have parents, but you have Gamera, end quote. I find this kind of bewildering. It's kind of sweet that I guess you're reaching out to orphans and giving them a role model, but you couldn't give them a role model that, I don't know, could actually take care of them or nurture them. He's a giant turtle. 
He's not equipped to give the kind of emotional support that children require. He can't even give you a proper hug without crushing your body to a fine powder. All you're going to do is encourage kids to write letters to their government to pass legislation in favor of a massive reptile adoption clause. And that's a slippery slope. Sweden tried that back in 2004, and look how well that worked out for them. Also, according to the director, only children can see Gamera, which implies that the military is firing missiles and tank shells at an amorphous invisible blob, even though they refer to it as a giant turtle. In retrospect, maybe this guy's not all there. I also learned that after Gamera vs. Zegra was completed in 1971, Dae went bankrupt, and to make things worse, a protest erupted at the studio when the entire workforce was dismissed, and the entire backlog of props from the Gamera series was destroyed. You know Giron, that part shark, part Ginsu knife monster? Gone. You know Gauss, the pterodactyl with a head like Batman's cowl? No more. Daiei then became a subsidiary of Tukuma Shoten Publishing and sold off all of its real estate and by the end of the decade desperately needed cash again to survive, so they made the ill-advised Gamera Super Monster in 1980. It was a clip show of all the previous seven movies and some television anime that Daiei produced, mixed up with bargain basement elements nakedly stolen from Star Wars and superhero cartoons, which required a few new shots of the classic Gamera to be used. But how can you integrate new shots of a character into a movie when the models no longer exist? It seems that you can't, at least not well. Gamera Super Monster has a reputation for being one of the worst movies ever made, which I would say is an accurate reputation if it actually qualified as a movie which it does not. It's as much a movie as Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 is a movie, but lacking a single moment as compelling as... Garbage Day! Huh? No! I will say this, though. After Rift Tracks tackled Attack of the Super Monsters this year, I would not be upset if they directed their attention to Gamera Super Monster at some point in the future. They could probably make it work. An interesting fact that this box set contained... Like all the other Gamera sequels, it didn't make it to theaters in America. Instead, when Filmways picked it up in 1981, it made its television debut on MTV. And you think they don't play music videos now? Imagine that on the year of their launch, some VJ had to say the words, That was Laura Branigan's Gloria, now coming up the world premiere of Gamera Super Monster. Please, for the love of God, don't change the channel. Beavis and Butthead is coming up in 12 years. Sorry. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, the set includes the rebooted trilogy, Gamera, Guardian of the Universe, because Friend to All Children didn't test well with focus groups, but the idea of a flying turtle was copacetic. What I find amazing about the idea of a rebooted Gamera is that unlike Godzilla, who remains a powerful metaphor even decades after his traumatic birth, Gamera is always Gamera. He wasn't born of atomic hell, he was just woken up from a nappy nap. He's not nature unleashed, he has rocket jets in his butt. He's a walking joke premise. A charming joke premise, but a joke premise nonetheless. And that's all we know about him. 
Despite being in seven movies and whatever the fuck Gamera Super Monster is, he's an enigma wrapped in a riddle wrapped in crispy bacon encased in an unbreakable shell. But Guardian of the Universe sought to make sense of his origin and take him seriously. These movies have a sense of humor, but they're not jokey. They're for real. Here's what Lil G's origin is now. First of all, let's start with this. Atlantis exists. Okay, I'm listening. And they have an enemy. His name is Gauss. Yes, the Gauss of renown. So instead of getting Namor the Submariner to fight their battles, the Atlantean people bioengineer a flying turtle. Let me repeat. People who live underwater create a monster of their own design to defend them, and it's a turtle who can fly with rocket jets in his butt. Let's not get into how rocket jets work underwater because I'm no veterinarian, but how does the capacity for flight help an undersea society? You do a lot of underwater flying, do you? This is all a roundabout way of getting to my favorite thing that I learned from this box set. One of the supplements is a sit-down with the visual effects director for the reboot trilogy, who is a real Gamera nerd and kaiju freak, but super uncomfortable on camera. He appears to be hungover throughout his entire interview. A side effect of presumably having gotten drunk to get over his nerves, right there with you, buddy. But really, it's his answer to one particular question that sets my heart aflutter. Putting aside the Atlantis nonsense, which was not his decision, the interviewer eventually asks about Gamera's capacity for flight and how it was decided to depict this admittedly silly aspect in a reboot. After taking a beat, the special effects director gets very diplomatic and says, If you want to fly, you either gotta have wings or fire coming out of your ass. In that moment, I realized, Oh, they know this is silly too. And that doesn't stop them from appreciating it, because appreciation and silliness are not mutually exclusive. Which explains the whole box set and the very existence of Gamera. Love what you love, and don't let anyone, least of all me, tell you otherwise. It is on that note that we conclude The Chronicles Reconsidered. This Tuesday on the podcast proper, my good friend Nikki, host of the amazing YouTube show Trivial Theater, will stop by for a spirited chat about the creative process, producing content in a pandemic, her personal affinity for mystery science theater, and the unique charms of Deathbed, the bed that eats. Of course, you already have access to next week's episode here on the Patreon feed, <laughs> but you knew that. Next Friday, I'm going to do a special episode combing through my 2020 project letterbox list, recapping the best and worst of what has certainly been a memorable year, both cinematically and, well, otherwise. At last count, if we're including short films and documentaries, it's around 1,500 movies. Obviously, we won't talk about all of them, and some of them have already come up here and on the podcast proper, so we'll see how that goes. Until then, thank you for keeping this little cottage industry alive through your patronage. Until then, take care, and thank you for being a subscriber. Darn, that's the end.